hello, welcome into this week's episode of the show. I'm not actually getting quieter. I just wanted to see if you would be weirded out by that, Sam. I mean, I am. I'm I'm <laughs> listening to you on uh, not full blast, but like I wanted to turn up my podcast device. Yeah. Just yeah. To just to be like, whoa, what own, is but, what yeah. is going on with this dude? I'm just back from a few days in the mountains. My brain feels so cleared out. I'm also talking right now consistently because my phone is ringing in the other room and I forgot to turn the ringer off. And uh, so I'm just trying to talk over it while it rings. Uh, but so my brain is cleared out. Figured I'd just start this uh, episode by trying to confuse you. You know, it's a, it's a very mature podcast that we do here. Yeah. When we talk about the Rocky Mountain vibes, not just the baseball right. team. Right. Uh, but apparently it's what you are exhibiting exactly. and bringing the energy that you are bringing to the show. Here. So, so refreshed, man. You know, uh, my childhood best friend and I went camping for a few days and uh, it was, it was great. So here we are to welcome you into this week's episode, the 313th of the show before the show podcast. My name is Tyler Mon. His name is Sam Dykstra and we are uh, set to talk a lot of baseball today. We've got some three strikes topics coming up here momentarily. We've got a great conversation uh, here just after the jump. Uh, Benjamin Hill and I got to record an interview with members quite literally of the Reading Fight and Phil's family. I'll explain that coming up here in a little bit. Father's Day, of course, this weekend. And happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there and to all of your fathers uh, for this uh, coming Sunday's celebration. So we got that coming up as well. And uh, it's I was only gone for like three days. I feel like I've been out of the loop for a million years. How are you, Sam? I'm, I'm good. I uh, good. It's funny. You went into the mountains and like into nature and yeah. experienced the great outdoors. I went back to the office yesterday. Yeah. How was it? I saw, I I saw a post. Um, weird? Normal-ish? Uh, normal-ish. Yeah. Okay. Normal-ish. I mean, I'm sure many of you at home are going through the same thing we are right now about the, uh, you know, how often should I go back to the office? What is that going to be like? Um, going into the MLB offices, there were a couple people that I work with who I've only gotten to know over Slack, really, over the last year. Got to meet them in person. That was great. Uh, wore my mask Pretty much everywhere around the office. Didn't okay. have to wear it at, at my desk being fully vaccinated. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a small step towards normalcy. Okay. I will say. And because of the way the MLB office has been uh, not upgraded, but it's been decorated since the last time we were there. It's kind of funny walking into that building and there's these giant posters of Aaron Judge and Mike Trout and Ronald Acuna Jr. And it feels like they're welcoming me to work every day. Which That's is- cool. Very cool feeling. Yeah, we should explain to people uh, MLB.com, MLB uh, Network, MLB, uh, the commissioner's office. Everybody for years was in all different locations. And our offices, the MILB.com offices, uh, were down in Chelsea Market in New York City. And the commissioner's office was on Park Avenue. And the network was in Secaucus, New Jersey. And obviously studios and stuff are still there. Uh, But everybody, for the most part now, is under one roof. That happened in January, right? Yes. Of 2020. So you guys got like a month at work in this new building and then the world shut down for what has felt like absolutely forever. Uh, and it's basically been 16 months now, 14, 15, 16 months. Um, so it's like you kind of move into a new place and then just never see that place. So it's yeah. like, I would imagine it felt almost like a, uh, an initiation day for the second time around. Yeah, not only that, but I moved my desk. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's like a completely new thing uh, showing up in that all the stuff that I had packed up a couple of weeks ago, knowing I was moving my desk, but like, it was literally just like, Oh, here's a new spot. 
in this new building that I still don't really know that well. Crazy. Um, but there are some cool things about it. We don't have to get too much into the weeks of what our workplace is like, but I haven't even been oh, there. I've never been there. I know we needed to get you there. I'm very soon. excited. To if see only to, to see some of the meeting rooms, which yeah. are named after baseball right. legends. Um, like there's a cool Papa Bell room. And um, I think there's a Cal Ripken room and a awesome. Joe DiMaggio. Like I look into Joe DiMaggio room now. Very uh, which cool. Is pretty neat. I, I have not yet gone through and tried to book meetings in specific rooms just okay. to say like hello from Ted Williams. Right. But like I might soon, do that going soon. Forward. Yeah. We will do the podcast in some sweet room like that. Well, you'll do the podcast in some sweet room. I'll do the podcast in the same room that I always do it in. We can, we can name your, your room the Vinny Castilla room. Yeah, that's true. We can do some cool. Uh, I mean, Larry Walker's a Hall of Famer now. So I feel like they right. should probably just name a room after him in that building. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe, or I could just find like the most random Rockies player in history. This is the Jason Bates room now. What's this is going to be? This is the uh, the Jeff Parrott room. You know, the, the, the legends of my lifetime. Okay. So, <laughs> this is the your Vittori Alba room. Uh, well, okay. Now we're getting closer. Cause I feel like we, we there oh, were that's just right. You were like three when reference. the Rockies made their debut, Sam, where we get it. You're young. You were, you were a Rockies hipster. It's fine. You saw games <laughs> at mile high stadium. Did. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. did. I was there at that first game, Eric Young's Homer. You know, not to, not to brag about cheering for one of the worst franchises in sports. Um, but uh, here we are in this week's episode of the show before the show is we've thoroughly confused and uh, baffled you all. But we're getting set to talk some real baseball things. And uh, let's dive in for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. We're going to kick it off with a lot of prospects moving up and uh, getting shots at the next level. Guys headed to the big leagues, obviously, uh, over the last few weeks, there have been prospect debuts and guys we've seen, you know, kind of going in both directions. We saw Jared Kelnick go to the big leagues struggle there he's back in triple a now but continues to to surge with the Tacoma Rainiers um and we are seeing other guys make the climb up the ladder in their various systems and uh, among them have been some of the biggest names uh in all of minor league baseball including a guy who is currently the number three prospect in the entire game of baseball that is the corner infielder Spencer Torkelson in the Detroit Tigers organization who goes up uh from high a to double a he makes that move with the fourth-ranked prospect in his system, Dylan Dingler, the catching prospect who the Tigers took in the second round last year out of Ohio State. Uh, but Hunter Green making a move up. Cade Cavalli, friend of the show, making a move up. Shane Boz making a move up. Um, right now, what has been the lesson that you've learned from some of these promotions and, and what we've seen from these guys so far? Yeah, I mean, this was, for all intents and purposes, prospect moving week. That's how I kind of thought of it, um, which is interesting because I feel like Mid-June is normally when that actually happens in a regular season. Yeah. Uh, when we're starting a first week of April, because around now is when minor league all-star games would happen. Guys would get, you know, their, their honors there. They would get to go and participate in that. Uh, and then you would ship them off to the next level because obviously they had a good first half. So teams are kind of sticking to that schedule now. And I think part of that is, and I've said this plenty of times on this show and elsewhere, but still, a lot of teams were trying to figure out where to send guys to begin 2021. The last year, last year, um, you know, kind of put everybody in the wild west of player assignment and everybody was trying to figure out, okay, do we bump this guy up two levels? Do we bump this guy up three levels? Do we hold him back and act like, you know, 2020 never happened and only move him up a half measure. We saw something like that with like Grayson Rodriguez uh, who went from low a to high a, and then the Orioles quickly realized, okay, wait, 
he should really be at double A or Francisco Alvarez a couple of weeks ago um, who had never seen full season ball. So the Mets wanted to get him in full season ball quickly realized he wasn't being challenged at low A St. Lucie uh, and moved him up to high A Brooklyn. This group is kind of, you know, we knew that they were going to need to prove themselves a little bit longer. Spencer Torkelson and Cade Cavalli were first round picks last year. So they didn't have any pro ball experience. So starting them out at high A, like you normally do with a college player, didn't feel that conservative or aggressive really it felt about right. But both guys absolutely dominated both of those levels. Torkelson took a little bit of time to warm up uh, to high A, but I think part of that was he took some time off for a hamstring injury. Seems like a completely different hitter coming back uh, and finished up with a 312, 440, 569 slash line. So that was an OPS above a thousand. He had five homers in 31 games moving now to Erie. I think he's going to hit even more homers. Erie is actually normally a home run friendly ballpark. So we could see that that slugging number take off the more he plays in Erie. Uh, but Cade Cavalli had a 177 ERA. He actually leads all minor league baseball now with 71 strikeouts and only 40 and two thirds innings. Uh, crazy numbers for him. He struck out 15 batters in seven no hit innings last time out on June 12th. Uh, and if there was ever a start to be like, hey, guys, I, I really have nothing left to prove here. It's that it's uh, it's 15 strikeouts and seven no hit innings. He actually had uh, double digit strikeouts in four of his last five outings at Wilmington. So him moving up to Harrisburg made a lot of sense. Hunter Green, I've, I think we've said this. We featured him in MILB TV games of the week saying, like, go watch Hunter Green because he's going to hit 100 consistently. He's going to get it up to 102 even. His slider has been really, really good, and his changeup seems to be improving. That's how you end up with 60 strikeouts and 41 innings for him and a 1.98 ERA and seven starts. Uh, but he was somebody who missed all of 2019 during due to Tommy John surgery and then was pitching as part of, like, alt-site play and some instructs with the Reds last year. Uh, but – the last time he pitched, he was at low aid uh, Dayton or Dayton, excuse me. And trying to come back from that Tommy John surgery, we just didn't know what kind of pitcher he was going to be like. Put him at double A, even that felt maybe a tad aggressive, but still showed that he's very much pitcher, the pitcher he was before uh, the surgery. His results are even better on the field. He's matured in the way he pitches to batters. Uh, so get him that next challenge at AAA Louisville. And we'll see what happens to the Reds. I've, I've heard people mention. Uh, you know, could Green sneak into the a bullpen spot by the end of the year? We'll see. We'll, we'll see what his pitch count's going to be at, what his innings limit is. Uh, but we obviously know that the velocity is going to play for him. And Shane Boz, Shane Boz has some of the best stuff in in the majors or in the minors rather. Uh, his fastball really moves. I remember when he moved from the Pirates to the Rays. He said the Rays really liked the movement on that fastball, and they said, "Hey, just throw this. Like it moves a ton." Uh, and it moves in ways we really like. So just lean on this pitch, uh, and it seems to have worked really well. He does have some complimentary pitches as well. But what's really took taken off for him this year, starting out at AA Montgomery, and which led to uh, the promotion to AAA Durham, and he made his debut this week, uh, was the fact that he struck out 49 batters. He walked only two. So if he has this stuff that thrives on its movement and he's finding the strike zone this much – that's incredible. I mean, he could easily jump into the top 50 overall prospects, maybe even higher than that if this command and control stuff sticks. Uh, but that's as if the Rays needed another exciting piece at AAA Durham. They certainly add him right now. He actually turns 22 years old today, so he's very young for the AAA level. Uh, but what no better uh, – there is no better tri- – birthday present than jumping one step away from the major league. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on all these guys. Challenges are going to come. That's why they got moved up. Um, 
just letting them mash or strike everybody out at the levels they were at isn't going to help their development, but that's what we're going to see here in the next days and weeks. And maybe they'll even pass that test and move up again. I think Torkelson especially uh, could see a third level, given what he did at Arizona State and the, what he was showing there at the end at West Michigan. But all four of these guys are becoming must-follows very quickly. Strike two is very related to this conversation. Who is next in this line, Sam, whether it's somebody getting promoted in the minors, maybe somebody who's going to make a big league debut um, right now, who kind of seems like they've moved up on the docket to maybe be on deck baseball term uh, when it comes to promotions. Yeah. So I'll keep this to within the minor leagues, because again, this like moving week seems to be based on getting guys new challenges for the major leagues. You're calling somebody up to fill a need. And we're seeing that with Matt Manning, right? Matt Manning, as we're recording this on Thursday, is making his major league debut tonight. It was not at a point in which the Tigers probably would have liked to have done that. He actually leads AAA and ERA right now with the highest ERA at that level. Uh, but injuries to Spencer Turnbull and Matthew Boyd uh, led to the Tigers needing arms. Matt Manning is a good arm to have. He's going to make his major league debut. So there's lots of other calculus that goes into MLB debuts. Um, but in terms of call-ups within the minors, a couple names I want to throw out here real quick. Adley Rutschman, you know, if, if we're getting to the point where Spencer Torkelson's moving up, Adley Rutschman is at his highest level ever at double-A buoy. Um, but given conversations I've had with people with the Orioles, um, given what he's been able to show at the plate so far, kind of the timeline we expected him to be on, I don't think he's going to be in buoy for long. I think there is something to be said for him working with Grayson Rodriguez for a while um, and, and working with that staff at Bowie, which is obviously very talented, but in terms of what he's showing hitting wise, like he's going to need a challenge before long. And I wouldn't be able, or I wouldn't be surprised to see him in Norfolk at the AAA level uh, by 4th of July. Uh, I would say Julio Rodriguez, friend of the podcast, Tyler, you got to see just how electric he was at Olympic qualifiers at high A Everett right now. He's, it seems like every night he's doing something, he's continuing to hit the ball. I thought him moving up to high, or not even moving up, that's a level he finished 2019 at, uh, was pretty passive. He's passing all the tests so far over there in Everett. I think he can certainly move up in the next couple of weeks. Um, one name I want to throw out here that I didn't, or that, that I had in my initial MLB.com piece that a, a certain, or has unfortunately is not going to result in a promotion anytime soon is DL Hall. The Orioles have actually announced that he's going to be shut down for a little while with an injury, I believe, to the shoulder. Uh, he got off to a really strong start. Control was a little iffy, but he was striking out at least 40% of the batters he faced at double-A. Uh, really promising start, getting him together with Rodriguez and Rutschman made that buoy team. Uh, very exciting to watch, and I thought Rutschman and Hall might not last very long given what they had already shown in 2021, but it sounds like it's going to be a while for them. Uh, one other name I want to sh throw out re real quick because I did say the Mariners have been passive with Rodriguez this year, but they have been aggressive with younger prospects in the past, thinking back to Jared Kelnick in 2019 when they sent him up three levels. Uh, Noel Di Marte uh, in that Mariners system, currently at low A Modesto, uh, but just tearing the cover off the ball there. And yes, it is the Cal or the old California league uh, that Modesto plays in. But uh He's comfortably had, you know, OPS is around a thousand pretty much for the year. At the time I wrote this, his 999 OPS was second among all minor leaguers who are 19 or younger, only behind Francisco Alvarez, who had moved up. Uh, he's gotten better in June than he was in May. Uh, we kind of had him circled as somebody who could have some helium, but he hadn't played above 
the Dominican Summer League, I believe, uh, coming into this year. So the fact that the Mariners sent him to Modesto, they wanted him to find his feet, but he's certainly doing that. And I think at a certain point, you're going to want to see him, what happens when you're pitching up, or going up against a little bit tougher pitching. I think he'll find that at high A, and I think that will probably happen before uh, mid-July. But that, that's just my guess right now. But with the way Marte is performing, he's not only going to climb up the Seattle ranks, he's going to climb up prospect rankings as well. And strike three this week, we are, uh, you know, at, ordinarily we'd be at this stage talking about we're near the midway point of a minor league baseball season. Obviously, we are uh, essentially a month and a half into this season, and we're past the stage of, well, small sample size, this guy is doing X, Y, or Z. So right now, looking across leaderboards in minor league baseball, there are stat leaders who stand out in uh, a lot of categories. Um, Joe Adele right now, the minor league home run leader. He's kind of shared that uh, honor with a handful of players across the minors at times. Uh, Cade Cavalli, who we were talking about just a little bit ago, strikeout leader uh, in the minor leagues. Who right now among leaders, current minor league stat leaders, Sam, is likely to end the year in that position in their categories? Yeah, I guess I guess the obvious answer for me right now is, uh, is Cade Cavalli. I mean, we mentioned again that strikeout um, total right now, you know, stands at 71 through 40 and two thirds innings. He's going to be challenged here at Double A Harrisburg, but by the look and sound of it, he's got the velocity to handle Double A for sure. He's got the full range of pitches, I think, to to make that jump work. Uh, it's been really fun to see him take off in this way because we were like, oh, you know, he's a first round pick, so everybody knows him. But a lot of that is is based off what he was showing in his junior year, but that got cut short, which we talked to him about a little bit. The fastball is good. The slider is above average. The changeup is above average. What's going to happen when he has to go up against pro batters. And the fact that he made high a batters look silly is, is really enticing to me. Um, I think the biggest thing that could hold him back from that potentially is again, coming off the 2020 season, uh, not many innings in that arm between Oklahoma and then whatever he got last year during his brief time in the Nats system, what is his innings limit going to look like? Are they going to cut him off at like 110 or 120 and that could hurt his ability to lead in strikeouts? But that's basically true of everyone, I guess. Like every nobody really pitched a lot last year except for, you know, in their backyards and um, in some facilities here and there. So it, I think if anybody, he's certainly like, other than Joe Adele, but Joe Adele's at AAA already. Like I think he's going to get called up to the Angels at some point. Uh, and I don't think he's going to lead the minors and home runs, but he's like the most notorious minor league leader right now that I think that he could actually hold on to that. I mean, I, I do love, uh, you know, that Ken Waldachuk still has a 0.00 ERA over 32 thirds innings. And it sounds like that's real. That's not like, I, I, he's been more dominant than we were expecting in the Yankee system. He too is moving up to double a Somerset, but I'm not going to reject that anybody other than Jacob deGrom is going to have his ERA below one. Um, so we'll keep an eye on this stuff for sure. It's, it's fun to check in at the six week level. Tyler, was there anybody you had on your list? You know, I, uh, do very much love some of the names that pop out of, I don't want to say nowhere essentially, but names you haven't necessarily thought about a whole lot before. Um, you know, Waldachuk is a guy who I don't think the average fan probably really knows a ton about. Uh, there's a pitcher also in that Yankee system right now in Glenn Otto, who has been putting up absurd strikeout numbers mm. uh, as of this season. I know I wrote up a, a blurb for one of his stories 
uh, just the other day on, you know, another nine strikeout, I think zero walk game uh, for him. So there are these guys who on minor league leaderboards, you may not be super aware of as of yet, but that's kind of where a lot of guys put themselves into the, the forefront of prospect observers minds is there's so many guys in minor league baseball guys are going to fall through the cracks at times. And when you see performers take that next step and put up, you know, absurd numbers, whether it's at a certain level and you think, okay, maybe this is just sort of a, a helium performance, a guy who's going to get promoted. And then all of a sudden we'll see what he's really made of. You know, somebody like Glenn Otto is doing this right now in double a uh, with the Somerset Patriots. And so far this season, which is his fourth in pro ball 3.95 ERA, which you know, maybe a little on the high side for a guy who's had these numbers, but he struck out 69 batters and walked 11 in 41 innings so far this season. Um, so that's an arm that, you know, I've kind of come across over the last few weeks. And Ken Waldachuk, weirdly enough, is one spot ahead of him uh, in the organizational rankings and is on that same Somerset rota- roster right now uh, and in that rotation. Uh, 27th-ranked prospect, Waldachuk. The 28th-ranked prospect is Otto. Um, I love those guys who just – you don't really talk about. They're in the back end of organizational rankings – but all of a sudden they come on you think, okay, maybe there's something here that, you know, in the Yankee system, we're so mindful of Jason Dominguez and Davey Garcia and, you know, Clark Schmidt and Oswald Peraza and all of those guys. Maybe there are other guys in the system who we need to be keeping an eye on as well. Um, those are some of my favorite stories across minor league baseball year after year. Yeah. Yeah. And one other one I'll throw out real quick is Joe Gray Jr. Yeah. Milwaukee Brewers. He leads minor league baseball right now in RBIs uh, with 42 through 36 games at low A. Uh, Somebody who had been circled is like, this guy has a decent amount of tools. Um, He has the raw power. He has above average speed. He has a good arm. Is he ever going to hit enough? You know, we'll have to see starting out this year at low A in his age 21 season. So he is a little old for that level to be a legit prospect, but Hitting above 300, he's got an OBP over 400. He's flirting with a 700 slugging percentage. He's taking all the boxes to put himself back on the map. Um, And I know he's on the outside looking in right now of the Brewers list for MLB pipeline, but uh, between graduations, trades, all that kind of stuff, and his own performance, he's the exact type of guy who, through performance alone, could force his way back into it. And that's three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up, we are headed to the Reading Fight and Fills organization where we get a chance for a a family interview. Father's Day is coming up, and we've got the the patriarch of one of baseball's uh, best minor league baseball families, Tom Hunziker, who is a uh, a member of the Fightin's roster, essentially, in a strange way. He is a mascot who is 70 years old now. Uh, Tom Hunziker will join the show, and he will be joined with us, with me and Benjamin Hill, by his son, Reading Fight and Phil's general manager, Scott Hunsaker, and Scott's brother, Todd, who is the chief director of promotions for the Reading Fight and Phil's. It's Father's Day week, and we're talking with the baseball family coming up next. Here on the show before the show podcast, Tyler Mon and I are joined by three Hunsaker men, uh, Scott Hunsaker, the general manager of the Reading Fight and Phil's his brother, Todd, the chief director of promotions, and their father, Tom, who I'm not sure if he has an official title, but he has perhaps the most impressive title as uh, what we believe is the oldest mascot in minor league baseball. Tom just turned 70 years old. And uh, so it's a very unique relationship here in in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, Brothers on the same front office staff, father is a mascot. This this segment will be running uh, the week of Father's Day and uh, 
you know, we just wanted to tie it all together and talk about a unique father-son's relationship in minor league baseball. So first of all, guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so where to begin? We'll start, uh, Scott, you've been with the team the longest, almost 30 years now. Um, from that point, uh, how did you get the rest of your family in uh, on the operation? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, well, it certainly wasn't part of the plan necessarily, but uh, we have a really close family. We do everything together. Uh, my dad was our coach growing up. So sports, you know, we always sort of did it together. Uh, so when I started working here in 92, um, my father, my brother, my whole family would always come to the games and uh, they weren't uh, that local. They're from Philadelphia and we're in Reading, Pennsylvania. So it was like an hour drive. Um, but that just continued over time. And uh, eventually we decided to add additional mascots. And, uh, you know, we have like five, six mascots. And as anyone who has mascots knows, the, the hardest thing about a mascot is the human inside the mascot. It's like a great concept to be like Disney World to have, you know, hundreds of mascots, but then you need a lot of humans. And uh, it takes a special kind of person. So I was telling my father that story. And he's, uh, he's like, I've always wanted to be a mascot, you know, and he was uh, always so great with the kids as a youth coach and everything. Um, so I wasn't too sure if he was serious or not, but long story short, he, he started mascotting and uh, became a part of our organization as a mascot. And then shortly thereafter, my brother uh, started an internship with us after his career in teaching. And uh, and he became the duck in the mascot band and they're in the mascot band. I don't know how to play musical instruments. So I'm just kind of like the sound guy, but that's kind of how we all ended up here together. Uh, and it's a, it's a family environment as everyone listening to this knows minor league baseball is a family environment and uh, our organization is built around family atmosphere in the front office. So there's no better way to have a family atmosphere than to actually have real family. And uh, I'm lucky. I get to go to work with my brother every day. I get to work with my dad. Uh, as a mascot, you know, two, three times a homestand. So it's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm a blessed person. Yeah, it is awesome. Yeah, story. <laughs> and um, you mentioned the, uh, the mascot band, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, to start, Tom, you just turned 70 years old recently. And uh, I'm not sure if we keep records of these sort of things. But as far as anyone knows, you're the oldest mascot in minor league baseball, doing it for, I think, over 20 years now. Um, you know, how do you stay in shape and uh, keep doing this? I mean, I'm uh, quite a bit younger than you are, and I don't think I would have the stamina to be in a mascot suit, and you're doing it at age 70. It's a story of inspiration. So how do you stay in condition to do such uh, grueling work uh, while dressed as change up the turtle? Well, it's just staying active all the time. Playing golf, coaching Little League Baseball, going to the gym. Uh, and when you love to do something, it really becomes quite easy. To, uh, to do it. Short answers. Yeah. <laughs> and his years of training, and uh, he was a Strowman's bread truck driver. They don't have any air conditioning in those trucks. Oh, yeah. So he would spend all day in the truck in the heat. So spend, uh, he was telling me the other day, being in the mascot costume is uh, a lot easier than that. Yeah. You get used to it. You get used to it. Todd, for you being on the promo side, um, you guys always, you know, between a promo director and a general manager, there's so much collaboration and coordination and all of that. But the fact that you've got a, a brother who's in that position, your dad is one of your mascots. Um, how much do you feel like you kind of 
I would imagine you can throw anything out in any context and there's uh, a conversation with, you know, people that you're so close with about how can we make this better? I mean, what's it like getting to work with guys that you've known your entire life uh, to make the, you know, one of the real crown jewel franchises in minor league baseball better year after year on the promotion side? Yeah, it's been awesome. Uh, and it's really just been a continuation of what we've always done since we were kids, really. I know we always tell the story that we had a nice backyard with a cool little uh, wiffle ball field and, we used to, you know, not just play wiffle ball. We used to play in some wiffle ball tournaments. And Scott was always kind of taking the lead on that, uh, organizing everything. But, um, you know, I always kind of backed them up with uh, trying to add some music and, uh, you know, brackets for the tournaments and things like that. So really, it's not much of a different concept. And, and uh, we kind of function and work together the same way as when we were in the backyard playing some Little League games, uh, just for a lot more people. Uh, and a lot more fun, really, uh, to bring everybody involved. One of the the neatest identities in minor league baseball, I mean, you guys with the the baseball town um, energy, the the image, the feel of the ballpark, the um, you know community aspect of what the the fight and fills are in Reading. Um, how do you guys feel like? the community is reflected in your family and vice versa. I mean, when you see families at the ballpark, I would imagine there are a lot of people who are aware of the relationship between you three and, you know, growing up in the area and Philly's ties and, and all of that. Um, what does that mean to have this relationship in your front office, but also as a wider part of a community that's so tightly knit for a minor league baseball franchise? You want to take that one first? I guess I should have addressed that to somebody. I guess I would say that, uh, you know, when I went to college, I, I thought I was going to be a, a guidance counselor and a coach. And, uh, and that's, you know, when my mom and dad sent me to school, that's what I, that's what I trained to be. And then I did this internship sort of randomly uh, my senior year during baseball season. And, uh, and the thing I fell in love with was families coming to the ballpark that didn't know each other and talked, and they would talk to each other. And it, it fascinated me. Uh, my dad's a real outgoing guy as a coach, as a youth coach. We always you know, knew all the families that played in our organization, also the other team. We always met the other team, talked to the other team. And honestly, uh, I was like struck when I started working here, but not by the baseball so much, I love it, uh, but like the families talking to each other, complete strangers, which is really weird now in 2021 coming out of a pandemic, because we almost have to like retrain our brains to do that, you know, that we can talk to a strange family that's sitting at the seats next to us. Um, but honestly, I think that to answer your question, you know, that's what drew me to this. That's what made me decide to take this job instead of other opportunities. And so for us to be here working together is really just a continuation of that. You know, and Ben's covered this before, but we have a concession stand where we have a grandmother, a mother and grandchildren all working in the same concession stand. Um, and so we're not unique here. Um, this is a fascinating uh, three generational place. You know, my kids work here a little bit now when they can. And so we're three generations, but we have that amongst our, our other game staff employees um, and our front office. Most of our front offices, spouse uh, and significant others work here, which is which is common around our industry. Look, we're here all the time. And I think my dad will tell you, you know, one of the reasons that he sort of took the mascot job was, you know, when your kid's 25 years old working in minor league baseball, you don't see him much. And, uh, and one of the reasons he took the mascot job was a couple, three times a week, we'd get to hang out. Um, yeah, so that's kind of you know, a long-winded answer, but 
Um, there really is no line of demarcation between what we're doing and what our fans are doing when they come to the game. I mean, they're spending time with their family, and we're spending time with our family. So it, it's sort of a natural progression. Well, I said I'd get back to this because it's a topic that uh, really needs to be explored. But uh, the mascot band, one of those quintessential minor league baseball oddities, a full band of mascots banging out, you know, garage rock classics, uh, rocking in the free world, that sort of thing. Uh, Todd and Tom are both members of the band, or at least, uh, you know, their uh, respective mascots are. And so tell me a little bit about the origin of this uh, most unusual band and uh, the kind of songs you like to play and what it's like having father and son on stage uh, rocking out as mascots. You know more about the artist. I, I guess I let me know. tee it up and then you take yeah, it as the artist. So Chuck Domino uh, had an idea. We had like a space in the stadium where we didn't know what to do. And uh, he was trying to describe to me like Chuck E. Cheese where you put like a quarter in and those like animated mechanical robotic things play music. I thought he meant like actual humans inside mascot costumes. He meant one of those mechanical things, which would have cost like $50,000, $100,000, those animatronic things, you know? So that misunderstanding led to, well, maybe we could have people play it. But I was like, dude, if you know musicians, like one of the reasons you're a musician is because like you want people to, you want people to know it's you playing the music. So to like remove your identity was an oddity. Um, the only chance at it was my brother was playing some guitar and singing. So I took uh, the duck costume, I guess it was. And after I came up here, uh, I was just hanging out, you know, came up as much as I could in the summers when I was teaching. And uh, they kind of threw the idea at me. And uh, I happened to have a guitar in my car, which I often did, at, you know, at that time in my life. Brought it inside. They put a mascot, just a head on me and uh, played a couple of chords and everybody fell over laughing. And uh, I think it was like two weeks later, we uh, we debuted the mascot band. So uh, it all happened very quickly. And it's pretty crazy uh, to think 20 years later, uh, we're still doing it. And we still have the original four members of the mascot band. Um, and for one of those to be my dad, I mean, as I grew up, uh, you know, playing violin and saxophone and and early in school and everything certainly never envisioned being in a rock and roll band with my father uh this many years later uh, but uh it's been awesome and it's uh yeah the other members as well you know bucky the beaver's best friend mike fink is uh one of the original four members and uh screwball's best friend dean stump has been around for 20 years as well um, we've had blooper the hound dog has kind of rotated over the years um, but we've had the same guy gene sweeney playing lead guitar as Blooper's best friend for uh, probably 13 or 14 years yeah. now. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a, a fun, furry mascot ride. I got to ask, yeah. are there, like, super fans of the mascot band? You guys get, like, the play Wonderwall. Like, what are your big hits? What's the what's the fan dynamic like? There are. Well, it's funny, you know. <laughs> if, uh, we've, we've found a certain uh, – we do mix in, you know, mix the songs up to a certain degree, but there's definitely some songs we've been playing for, like, 20 years. Uh, you know, when, when you find uh, the humans that are willing to, to play in a mascot costume and we actually find some songs that work, uh, you know, you don't mess with that. You stick with them. So it's a working we've Generally, formula. I think for 20 years, we've opened almost every show with American Band by Grand Funk Railroad, and we've closed every show with uh, Rockin' in a Free World, and in between – uh, we just have a whole bunch of fun. So, but yeah, there are super fans uh, of all ages. Honestly, uh, you know, 
we used to be a, uh, we started as a post-game concert band, you know, really hanging around for the adults who wanted to have a few more adult beverages after the game. And that, that set list was a little different than what we do now, because uh, we did realize that little kids weren't seeing the mascot band. You know, the, the crowd after the game was more skewed toward adults. Um, so about halfway into the mascot band years, uh, they proposed the idea of switching it to a pregame concert. And that's really uh, when it started to take off and, and kids really started to uh, identify with the band members, you know, and with rock and roll, which is kind of, uh, you know, in, in today's modern music and everything, it's really nice uh, to help promote good old fashioned rock and roll and, and playing some real instruments. So um, that's definitely always, uh, you know, an undercurrent of the mascot band's message as well. Rock and roll will never die. And um, Tom, you play the bongos in this band. Um, were you a, uh, you know, accomplished bongo player going into this or was it a no, sort no, of no. learning? <laughs> no, they have five costumes. They needed somebody. So they, <laughs> they looked around and I said, I'll do it. And uh, I started on a pair of electronic drums, little Yamaha electronic drums. And then uh, for Christmas, I got a set of congas which was a great Christmas present for, I think it was 55 or something at the time. I got, I got my congas, actual congas. But the, the other uh, musicians are extremely, extremely talented musicians. And I am just a percussionist <laughs> of sorts. Well, he, he likes to sell himself short there. But I remember as a kid growing up, uh, driving around in the car, he was one of the best steering wheel dashboard drummers I've ever known. So... You know, he likes to say he never played an instrument, but he's been really playing the uh, playing the bongos, if you will, our whole lives. The um, only instrument, the only instrument I can play, so I feel very good. The <laughs> dashboard steering wheel thing is like a recognized yeah. musical form. I'm happy about that. You can do more. You can do that. You can do more. You're an Get inspiration, Tom. Get a set of congas. Well, he always wanted to be in a rock and roll band, and so uh, that sort of happened there. You know, and I don't think he ever wanted to be a mascot, but. And he's good at it. You know, honestly, uh, some people, I guess, that listen to this think, oh, okay, yeah, Scott and Todd's dad want to be a mascot, so they entertain, you know, they let him. Uh, that's not it at all. I mean, if you've ever seen him be a mascot, uh, he's the best. I mean, he's right, you know, his energy, and nobody can tell there's a seven-year-old guy in the costume. He doesn't let one kid go unattended or noticed. Uh, he dances out there like he's 21 years old. And uh, you know, it's, it's really is inspirational, honestly, as a 51-year-old uh, to see him out there doing it. Uh, and the fans acknowledge that he's got that energy. So it's pretty cool. They still coaches Little League Baseball with me and all that stuff. So, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to sustain it like he has. Yeah, well, Tom, when I interviewed you in Reading uh, about being a mascot, you know, you said you your your goal was to work uh, till till you were seventy and beyond, and you've hit that milestone and still going strong. Or you reassessing those goals, or just taking it one day at a time and uh, no, just just gonna go go go. Just uh, I quit when I collapsed. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> okay. <laughs> That'll be a different kind of podcast. I, I don't want to go on as long as I can. As long as I can still, as long as I don't look like a 70-year-old in a costume, I'm going to keep going. Once I start looking like that, it will be time to think about being an usher. Yeah, he's in probably the best shape he's been in a long time. And it's funny because as our season approaches, he like goes into like baseball player mode. Like he's got to get ready like for spring training. 
and it's hilarious, you know what I mean? So it's like, I gotta get ready, mascot's coming up. And he takes it pretty serious, you know, he's like, he won't ride in the golf cart, he's gotta walk the course, you know, cause he's gotta get ready for being a mascot. And, uh, you know, for people that aren't like around him very often that hear that, they're like, this guy's getting in shape to do what? What the heck is he talking about? Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. It's kept us together, but it's also kept him, you know, physically fit and everything like that. That's a good message too for, for you know, our sons and all kids. Yeah, well, it is a, a, unique, a unique story and an inspiring story and um, quintessentially minor league baseball. So, um, Scott and Todd and Tom, uh, yeah, can't wait to see the mascot band play again. And uh, it's uh, only in minor league baseball, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, in advance, you know, happy Father's Day. And um, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you all very much. Thank you. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One is the real deal, the others are phony baloney. <laughs> in last week's segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Woods Hole Deep Divers B. The Miramar Beach Beaches C. The Green Bay Bays the correct answer is C, the Green Bay Bays. Now that we're at sea level, <laughs> let's dive right in with the Bays, who surfaced late in the 19th century and got along swimmingly in the Wisconsin-Illinois League from 1909 through 1914. The Bays never floated to the top of the heap, but over those six seasons, they sometimes tied up the Freeport pretzels, downed the Racine malted milks, and cut through the Wausau lumberjacks. The Green Bay Bays came closest to getting their bottle in their first and last years, in each of which they finished second. In the prior, they were led by Felix Schwinnard, who rose to the Chicago White Sox and sunk back to the Bays a couple times over the next few seasons, and manager John Pickett. Pickett's charge ultimately let him down, finishing 69-54 and 54 behind the consistently frustrating Madison Senators. In the latter, manager Bobby Lynch was the Bay's buoy, but not the linchpin needed for a title. Although Green Bay was a bit adrift between those two second-place finishes, the Bays stayed afloat with once or future big leaguers of lasting fame. We're talking about legends like Fritz Mollwitz and Joe Benz. After the 1914 campaign, the Bays and the rest of the Wisconsin-Illinois League could find no port in the storm that was the financial reality of pro baseball in the second decade of the 20th century. All the bookkeepers underwater, Green Bay would not harbor another miners team until 1940. We hope you've soaked up the facts on the Green Bay Bays, because that's about all the fun we can squeeze out of them. So now, let's test our gullibility with next week's question. Which of these unsuspecting teams of unsophisticated bumpkins gee whizzed their way about the miners after the Second World War? Hey, Ma, look at that pointy-haired little girl. <laughs> A, the East Moline Easy Marks. B, the Shreveport Suckers. C, the Riverside Rubes. 
Step right up, pay your nickel, and take a guess. Or just get the answer by tuning into next week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is trying to make a peanut butter sandwich, and he's in an awful jam. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show milb.tv is your place to catch all of the top talent in minor league baseball as the summer rolls along sam what are you watching on milb tv this week yeah so this week i got my eye on altoona is visiting erie so i, I mentioned up front uh the erie seawolves now have spencer torkelson who i expect to have even more power at the double a level because of the way the erie park plays but also dylan dingler Tyler, who you brought up is also has also gotten that call from high A to double A. Uh, Dingler is a pretty exciting player. Um, he's fairly athletic for somebody who's a catcher. Like he's got an above average run tool. Um, he can be a good hitter. He's been an even better hit hitter this year than I was expecting. I know the Tigers were very excited to add into their system and were very excited based on what they had seen uh, coming into this year. And he's certainly checked all the boxes. So don't just keep your eye on your Riley Green your Spencer Torkelson, but also Dylan Dingler, I think can be an exciting player, but you're going to want to watch all those three guys in the lineup regardless. But since they're playing the Altoona curve, the Altoona curve also have O'Neill Cruz, um, who is somebody who I had circled as somebody who could get the call up to triple a pretty soon. He's somebody who already had double a experience uh, coming into the year. He has added to that. He's got plus power. He had a highlight the other night in which his left fielder misplayed a ball. Um, so he actually threw out a runner from short left field uh, who was trying to get home. His arm really is a cannon. I tweeted out at the time and I'll stand by this. The buyers should just make him a right fielder at this point. Uh, he is way too tall to be shortstop. Yeah. Although all the reports there are pretty six, good. Seven, six, six, seven, seven, six, yeah. seven. Yeah. A lot. Not, not hard to find him on the baseball yeah. field. Yeah. Uh, but his arm is, is really something special. And I think they would get more out of it, putting it in right field than they would at short, but they really want to make that happen. So either way, you're going to see some sort of highlight out of O'Neill Cruz, I think, and, and having him on the same field as your, again, Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, Dylan Dingler. That's a pretty good matchup and one you should all watch on MILB.TV. Uh, Tyler, what do you got your eye on? Yeah, I'm going to go to a, a place near and dear to your heart and the Worcester Red Sox here in 2021 as uh, Worcester getting this season uh, underway for the first time at its uh, new ballpark, Polar Park, which is Sam's Zoom backdrop, by the way, in a place that looks absolutely gorgeous uh, as he shows it off here on the video. Um, the Worcester Red Sox are rolling. They lost yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday the 17th. That snapped a seven-game winning streak uh, in which they swept six straight from Syracuse Syracuse and then beat Lehigh Valley in the opener uh, of a six game series at home against the Iron Pigs. That team is a, a very interestingly comprised roster. And there's two guys that I've got an eye on right now. And this is obviously a, in a selfish manner because I just saw them recently uh, at the, the Olympic qualifier for uh, the international game, but Jeter Downs and Jaron Duran, who both played in that qualifier, Jeter Downs for his native Columbia, Jaron Duran is part of the U S team uh, that qualified for the Olympics. So potentially a guy who could be uh, in the Olympics coming up next month. Those two guys have kind of struggled since they returned from the qualifier. Uh, but I know, this is a, a group that, you know, obviously the Red Sox are very excited about him with good reason. And those two guys, both pretty young, very dynamic talents. Um, Jeter Downs is 
a really fun player to watch. He had two homers a few nights ago uh, for the first time this season. He's only got five for the season, but he had two uh, in a game on the 13th at Syracuse. Um, he's a guy who, you know, has the potential to do something really fun, really exciting every night. And Jaron Duran is just a very consistent player. And I know was one who really, really impressed his teammates, his coaches with USA baseball. Um, Todd Frazier could not stop raving about Jaron Duran. Um, and he's a, a guy who, you know, figures into that puzzle coming up in relatively short order. You would imagine, Imagine uh, for the Red Sox, he's started the month a little bit slow, but have multi-hit games for uh, three straight days from June 12th through the 15th, three straight games, I should say. Um, so those two guys know are in action this week against the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. You can catch that game on MILB.TV. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, you can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Uh, you can tweet at us at Sam Dykes or MILB and at Tyler Mon. And uh, for Benjamin Hill, who is not here, big thanks to Ben for his help with the interview. And for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.